Amen. Be seated, please. Take your Bible and turn to Matthew chapter 13 as we continue in the kingdom parables. Looking at three more today. Matthew chapter 13. I'm going to begin in verse 24. This is God's Word, and it does indeed endure forever. He put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? He said to them, An enemy has done this. So the servants said to him, Then do you want us to go and gather them? But he said, No, lest in gathering the weeds you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest, and at the harvest time I will tell the reapers, gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. He put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It's the smallest of all seeds, but when it is grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree, so that all the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till it was all leavened. All these things Jesus said to the crowds in parables. Indeed, he said nothing to them without a parable. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter what has been hidden since the foundation of the world. Then he left the crowds and went into the house. And his disciples came to him saying, Explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. He answered, The one who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world, and the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one, and the enemy who has sown them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are angels. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send His angels, and they will gather out of His kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers, and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, and the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. He who has ears, let him hear. Let's pray real quick. Concludes with, he who has ears, let him hear. Father, I assume most of us in the room have ears. We ask that we would have your spirit, that we might hear. Not just the words that are read, 
or the words that are spoken, but that we might believe them in our hearts. For Christ's sake, amen. What's the mark of a good mystery? Do you ever think about that? I mean, some of you are, I know you well enough, you may deny it, but you are mystery junkies, some of you. What's the mark of a good mystery? Is it that kind of, you know, mind-bending plot twist at the very end that you never see coming? Like, ah, I never would have seen it. Is it a character that you can kind of uh, enjoy some aspect of their, you know, their, their character of how they go about solving their mysteries? Whether it's uh, Sherlock Holmes with his intense brilliance, uh, rude to almost everybody, but so brilliant that you, you marvel at how smart he is. Or one of my favorites, Columbo, right? How, how humble he is. You, you underestimate him. Just one thing, and that's when it all unravels, right? I would say all of these things are important. I think perhaps, though, might be most important is somewhere along the way, it needs to convey a great sense of it's not finished yet. Right? I mean, that, that's really the mark of a good mystery is that at some point, usually it's perhaps maybe a quarter of a third of the way into the book or into the movie or whatever it is. If you kind of pause and reflect on it for a moment, you realize, well, I know what the problem is. I think maybe part of it at least. But I can't wait to figure out what the rest of the story is. What is the hound of the Baskervilles? Is it a, a demon hound out on the moors? What, what's the rest of the story? It's, it's incomplete. The whole experience isn't finished yet. I don't have all of the data. And that's actually why I think some of you end up being junkies. You constantly end up chasing the feeling of not knowing. Some of you actually have that ability to read to that point in a mystery novel to actually get hooked and then to just close it and put it away. And you people are psychopaths, I'm just telling you right now. Part of what we enjoy in the experience is that not knowing and and the longing for the, the resolution, the peace that follows, the justice that happens, the bad guy to get their comeuppance, the good guy to show their goodness, their righteousness, their intelligence, their humility, whatever it is. But the part that I think we probably enjoy the most is the kind of craving that comes with it not being done yet. That's why some of you, you know you've done this, you've stayed up all night finishing a book. Because you have to get to the end to where it resolves. I think in these uh, three parables that we deal with, Jesus is presuming amongst his listeners a kind of intuitive understanding of that feeling. That craving for completion, that, that longing for, for the mystery to be fully revealed, for everything to be made plain, for it to be obvious and at peace. 
The problem is, is that for his listeners, and I would suggest even for us today, as far as the mystery goes, if we're looking at, you know, kind of reality as a novel, we're still not past that kind of resolving end. We're actually still in that moment of longing of saying, look, I I know there's more to come. I I know the, the problem is going to be resolved, but it's not all finished yet. And what is it going to be? I think these three parables, uh, Jesus goes to explain to the crowds really that, that feeling, that longing that so many of us wrestle with, with so much of our lives. What is it, what is it gonna be? Is this all that there is? This section in the book of Matthew, he's dealing specifically with the kingdom of God. You remember Matthew is far more thematic than he is uh, chronological. That's how he tells the story of God's truth. And he's been telling from the very beginning the story of the kingdom of God. This chapter is special because he's here collected in chapter 13 what we call the kingdom parables. All of these are parables specifically designed to illustrate the nature of God's kingdom. And in so many ways, he's kind of working back and forth between this is what God's kingdom is like and this is how you should act. And this is what God's kingdom is like and this is how you should act. In this section here, we largely get this is what God's kingdom is like. It's going to imply action, certainly. The next section, I think, gets at action even more next week. We're going to handle them a bit out of order. But again, with a brief preamble, verses 34 and 35. All these things Jesus said to the crowds in parables. And again, reminder is good. Parable is a word that we hear all of the time in church circles, but oftentimes don't know how to define It's an extended illustration designed to teach. That's what a parable is. It's different from an allegory. An allegory, every single piece and part means something. These aren't allegories. We know that because the two biggies that Jesus actually explains, he actively leaves details out that aren't important to him. Instead, a a parable is almost even more closely resembled to like a fable. It's designed to have a a specific lesson or maybe two or three kind of closely connected that instructs the listener and the details are only as important as they hit that instruction. So interestingly, when Jesus goes to explain the parable of the wheat and the weeds or the wheat and the tares, if you have the older editions of the Bible, uh, there are a lot of details he's not going to mention. He doesn't think are important for us to understand because he's trying to advance one specific kind of key idea as part of it. And parables as a result of this are very difficult to understand. Uh, You have to look at them within the context of the scriptures, within the context of uh, the Bible as a whole, but the Bible specifically, the book that you're in, and in this case, in the context of Matthew particularly. So let's look at these. Uh, First thing we're going to look at, verses uh, 31 and 32. Parable of the mustard seed. 
Again, remember, I want you to read this and listen to this with that kind of tension in your soul that a good mystery gives. You're beginning to feel the problem. You're beginning to feel this life is not functioning the way it's supposed to function. And if you don't know what that means, just read anything from the news from last year. Right? It should be very obvious the world's not functioning the way we want it to. So verse 31, 32, he put another parable before them saying, kingdom of heaven. Okay, remember he's explaining what his kingdom looks like. It's like a grain of mustard seed. Which again, for us today, um, interestingly, I, I'm not particularly skilled in the kitchen. In fact, all I'm pretty much good at is poisoning you. Uh, and that would be by accident. So I don't really spend a lot of time there, uh, thankfully. Uh, some of you know what a mustard seed looks like. I couldn't tell you that because I don't know my way around any sort of spices. The important part of that, though, is that the Jews knew. And in fact, actually, the mustard seed was a commonly used illustration amongst the Jews as something that was very minutely small. It was intended to be kind of a common illustration, a common thing that would have been referenced as something tiny. Here, Jesus is not making up an illustration that's unique to him. He's using an illustration that everybody would already have understood The kingdom of heaven is like this thing that's tiny, incredibly tiny, but it doesn't stay that way. In fact, actually, given enough time, it grows and it becomes larger than all of the garden plants, becomes uh, what we would think of as a tree, this big sort of plant, and becomes so big that the birds benefit from it. Perhaps maybe our illustration today in our current ecology might be uh, if you were to you know, take like an oak seed, you know, these crazy little seeds that come out of the trees, and you would never think that given a hundred years, it could become a tree larger than this entire building. But they're huge, huge. I was preaching at a, uh, a church in our presbytery, I guess maybe two years ago now, and talking with one of the elders afterwards. And interestingly, though they're not that close to the sea, they have two gigantic live oaks growing right out front. These massive live oaks. And if you don't know the difference between a regular oak and a live oak, uh, live oaks are the ones that tend to grow out near Charleston, and their, their branches, instead of kind of going up and then out, they start going out from the very beginning. And so many times, very old live oak trees have these branches that'll be maybe this big around, head high, that grow out 40 feet from the trunk. Really old ones, you end up having to see them braced uh, to support them so that their own weight doesn't you know, cripple the tree and break it up. There was one over on Doobie's Bridge not too long ago where they had braced like that. But as I was talking to the gentleman, just admiring the, this beautiful tree, you don't get to see these in this area that often. He laughed and he's like, yeah, I planted that when I was a child. I said, excuse me? He goes, yeah, no, that... That tree right there is approximately, he's doing the math, 60-something years old because he had planted it with his father and with his brother when he was a child and told me the stories of having problems when the tree first began to grow and how you could pull the old crank start car a little bit too close and you couldn't crank the motor because you didn't have enough room and all these great stories of this tiny little thing that he had planted as a kid. Now this absolutely massive tree. Jesus is using an illustration that they themselves would have understood of something that would have been so small and unassuming, something that you wouldn't have even valued, that you wouldn't have even considered. It's just, 
But given time, expands and explodes and get to the point of such tremendous greatness. You see, he's really trying to kind of make, a, a, I would suggest, one primary point here. That God's kingdom has an inevitable and impressive end to a humble beginning. It's an inevitable and impressive end to a humble beginning. You would never have looked at the early church. You would never have looked at the kingdom of Jesus at this point in human history and thought, man, these guys are all right. They're going to do good. Right? You got this poor homeless carpenter kid who's got a bunch of, you know, guys that follow him. Most of them are just kind of working stiffs. Some of them we might have gone so far as to call kind of losers. I mean, not the kind of people you would necessarily have wanted to hang out with. In fact, actually, their uh, little motley crew that was kind of puttering on the land and teaching and listening to this homeless rabbi teach, uh, everywhere they go, the respectable people reject them, and all of the terrible people love them. I mean, everywhere he goes, the prostitutes and the drunkards and the tax collectors and the traders, they all come out because they love him. You would never have looked at Christ at this point in his ministry and thought, oh, this is a guaranteed success. I'm going to bet my entire life, I'm going to bet everything on these guys. You never would have thought that. In fact, you would have looked at them and thought, oh my goodness, what is this? And this will be another blip in history as another group of zealots tick off Rome and then get exterminated shortly after. They might get a page in a history book from where some doctoral student discovered them and wrote a paper about it, and that's all we ever know. And interestingly, Jesus is correcting that. Look, it it may not look so good right now. It may not look so hot at all, in fact, actually, but the end of it is fixed. It's inevitable. It will happen. It will be determined. It will grow even to the point of this marvelous and impressive end. Again, think about my friend down in Lowry's. When he was a little boy planting that tree with his father and with his family, would he, ever, would he have ever thought, this tree will be a marvelous, impressive, beautiful accompaniment to our hundred-year-old building anchoring that portion of the geography of the land. You never would have guessed that. But here it is. I mean, it's a striking tree. You can't get on the property and not notice. Jesus makes the same point about the kingdom of God. It, It doesn't look necessarily that great all of the time, but the ending is fixed. It will be impressive. It will be small to big, and interestingly, he even adds one little bit of nugget in here, just as an aside, that it gets to the point where even all of the birds of the uh, fields are able to shelter in its branches, probably a hint uh, referencing some of the Old Testament uh, here that uh, even the Gentiles would find safety in hiding within the people of God, the kingdom of God, which is good because most of us are Gentiles. We're fulfilling his command. I appreciate this parable in so many ways, one of which is that it does such a brilliant job of explaining our current lives. 
Right? Most of us can look around us now and acknowledge that it, we live after the fall. We live in a fallen world. Uh, not only do we live in a fallen world, we live in a cursed world. And it's easy for us to understand all of the kind of brokenness of the world around us. Right? We've had fights with people that we love. We've had arguments with them. We've said things that we don't like. We uh, have bodies that break down. Some of us wake up with new aches and pains, and you're like, I didn't even know I had a thing there to hurt. I don't understand what hurt it and why it's hurting, but it hurts now, and it's new, and I don't know why. We're living in a time in which our culture is responding uh, to a disease that has had an immense impact on our community. It's easy for us to acknowledge that what's happening around here might not necessarily always look great. And depending on your political persuasion, you've either had a really hard year or you've had a really hard four of the last five years, depending on your political persuasion. If you're independent, you've had always have a bad year. That's how you roll. But I love how even in the midst of acknowledging the difficulty of the world around us, what Jesus is explaining is that if you look at the kingdom of God, the hope is fixed. It's not up for negotiation. This is not like a, well, maybe it will, maybe it won't kind of moment. No, instead, the kingdom of God is going to flourish. It is going to grow, and it will have an impressive end to a humble beginning. That's not up for negotiation. Jesus has won, he is winning, and he will win. And if Jesus has won, is winning, and will win, you have won, you are winning, and you will win if you're his child. It's not up for negotiation. It's inevitable. It's fixed. And even we might say our own lives are going to follow that same pattern. Some of us, you look at your life and you think, ooh, that is a, that, that, I'm not a good person to bet on. <laughs> if you looked at the trajectory of my life over X number of decades or whatever, who you would never have bet on me. Yet Jesus is winning. And my life will be impressive in the end. C.S. Lewis actually makes this point in his book, The Weight of Glory. C.S. Lewis, not a theologian, he's a philosopher, uh, but certainly challenges us to think uh, lovely thoughts of heaven. In his book, The Weight of Glory, he actually makes this point that the glory that God's people will be themselves in the life to come is so great, it would break our minds now if we understood what we will become. Now, interestingly, he's not even making the point of how we will see God. He's making the point of what we become because the kingdom is that impressive and I get to be a part of it. He doesn't stop there. He gives us the parable of the mustard seed, again, highlighting that it starts small. It's a humble beginning. It has this impressive and inevitable end. Verse 33, he gives another one. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till it's all leavened. Again, I don't cook bread. If I did, no one should eat it. But here an easy illustration. He compares the kingdom of God, again, highlighting the inevitability. A woman, a baker, is baking bread. And she has flour, and instead of like today where you buy the little yeast packets or whatever, the little red and yellow ones, you tear the top off and dump it in. And the way they made it back then is that you would include part of the loaf, uh, part of the dough, I mean, from your previous batch. 
so that while that already had, you know, the, the leaven in it, it already had the right amount of things growing inside it, you could introduce that into your flour, and as you kneaded it into the dough, it would spread through and fill the entire thing. It's inevitable. Once you take dough and you introduce uh, the yeast into it, introduce the leaven into it, you can't undo that. Right? You can't be like, oh, rats, we made a mistake, we'll get that out. Right? If you don't want the leaven, you have to throw the whole thing away because it's absolutely contaminating. It spreads through, it changes and transforms. Again, here, that's the point Jesus is highlighting, that God's kingdom, it's transformative in its ending. So whereas the first one, it highlights kind of, it's going to happen, it's inevitable, and when it does, it's going to be impressive in the end. This one is, it's highlighting how it's inevitable, but it changes you along the way. It reshapes you, it remakes you, and in fact, actually, one of the, the neat little bits here is that most of us don't pay attention to the measurements in our Bible, right? Anytime we read any sort of measurement, we automatically just, whoop, tune it out and figure it's not that important. I mean, I know God's included it everywhere, but it's not that important. That's a real waste here, because the three measures of flour that's being referenced here are absolutely gigantic measurements of flour. And in fact, actually, what this woman is making is enough bread to feed 150 people an entire meal. What's being referenced here is the transformative effect of the kingdom of God is that if you take just a tiny little hand-shaped bit of leavened dough and mix it into enough dough to feed an entire town at that time, it's inevitable. That little bit will transform everything. It will change everything so that given enough time, the entire bit will be leavened. It makes a massive amount of food. It makes a massive change. For those of you that have made bread and you know that part is what happens is you add the yeast in, it begins to eat and make its little bits and everything, but it makes the bread rise, doesn't it? Think about how much of a change we're talking about. 150 people's worth of bread to see how much of an expansion that would have been. Most of us wouldn't have room in our kitchens today to cook like this, much less in the time in which Jesus is telling them this. They would have all probably chuckled at the illustration. Again, it's an inevitable growth and it's a transformative growth. The the loaf begins in one way, it finishes in another as God's kingdom transforms those that are apart. And again, I would encourage you, have peace in the inevitability of the kingdom of God. The Lord will do it. His kingdom will be impressive in the end. His kingdom will be perfect and transformed and beautiful in the end. And then we get to the hard one. Save it for last where we have the least amount of time to deal with it. It's okay. Parable of the wheat and the tares or the wheat and the weeds. And uh, what this is is actually very well known at the time. There's actually well-documented Roman law forbidding this from, from taking place. 
What would happen is a a man who owned a field would have his servants or slaves or workers uh, plant the field uh, with all of the good wheat, and then while they were asleep or not watching or whatever, his enemy would come through and sow darnel seeds, which uh, inherently aren't necessarily a bad thing, but as they get bigger and as they produce their own little bit of seed and such, they grow a fungus that is extremely toxic to humans. Uh, So much so that in Roman law, it was a really bad thing. You got punished for it, and it is actually well documented that one of the things that people did is just burn their entire field rather than risk poisoning their families, their children, everybody around. You just end up burning the whole thing. Jesus is giving that sort of illustration, and in fact, actually here, there's enough of these Darnell weeds that come up that's uh, so clear. The master in verse 27 says, well, you know, it's obvious that an enemy has done this. Um, we know at verse 28, I'm sorry, an enemy's done this. Uh, we know this isn't accidental. Instead, this is on purpose, and the servants say, well, do you want us to just right now go and pick out all of the bad ones? Well, at the earliest phase, you can't actually tell the difference between wheat and this darnel. Uh, it, the leaf is a little bit thinner. It's hard to distinguish, but okay. No, the, the roots would have been intertwined. To pull up one, you would have ended up pulling up the both. Instead, we'll just wait until the end, And make sure those that harvest are extra careful, will be extra patient and extra careful. Uh, This one, I think, is perhaps, again, the most comforting of the three is uh, here Jesus is telling another kingdom parable that's uh, expressing the inevitability of the kingdom. It's not up for negotiation. It is going to happen, and it's going to happen um, in a fixed fashion. God's going to do it. but it explains why he's not doing it now. Look, I'm going to be honest with you. Most of us find ourselves in situations where we understand that God is at work. And we usually understand that when we think God is at work in someone else's life. (laughs) Right? It's easy for me to believe God is at work when you're the one that's miserable. A little bit harder for me to believe that when I'm the one that's miserable. When we get ourselves in the most miserable of situations, when we're suffering the most dearly and uh, when illness or ailment or whatever, it is, that's when I think so many of us, we kind of grow discouraged. We grow to doubt God's goodness. Right? We think, well, is he really that good? I mean, if, if my life is this hard, it's just not fair. Everybody else's life is easy. It's a lie. Their life's not easy either. Well, why doesn't he just do it all now? Like, why, why are we even waiting? Well, interestingly, in verses 36 and following, as Jesus explains all that's taking place in the parable of the wheat and the tares, uh, he explains that really what the heart of God is in terms of the kingdom is patient. There's a reason why Jesus hasn't come back yet. It's because he's patient. There's a reason why God just doesn't snap his fingers if he had them and make all of your difficulties go away. It's because God is patient. It's because part of how his kingdom operates is it's designed over the long haul. So that it will be brought to fruition, it will be brought to completion, it will be brought to totality, but not until, verse 39, the end of the age. 
And when it's brought to the end, it, it's not up for negotiation. You see what he does here. The way it's described, Jesus has the angels go through as the reapers. They gather all of the people together. Those that are God's enemies are destroyed. They're taken to uh, God's wrath and justice and judgment forever. And those that are God's children are brought into his presence. They will, uh, verse 42, shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. But I think the thing that I just marvel at the most is just how patient God is. I mean, the way that this farmer goes to resolve his enemy's efforts, his enemy has poisoned his field. How will he resolve it? Well, we'll wait until the harvest is done. We'll wait until everything's grown, until everything's come to completion, and then we'll resolve it there. Our Lord is patient. Now, okay, so we've got three parables that we've kind of worked through very quickly. Uh, there's so much more here that we could look at and could think about, but what do we do as far as application? All right, okay, great. We have a, a parable that's explaining the inevitability and impressive nature of the kingdom of God. We have a parable explaining the inevitability and the transformative nature of God. Uh, we have uh, a parable that's explaining the inevitability and the, the division of the kingdom of God. What do I do with that? Well, one, I think passages like this are so important for us to have fixed in our mind on the good days so that when the hard days hit, we can be reminded there's a good reason for hope. It's interesting that Jesus, uh, to his disciples, as a, a foundational point of his teaching, is going to pound into their brains that the kingdom of God is inevitable. It, it's going to happen. It cannot be altered in that regard. That's going to be really important because if you take your Bible and actually turn the next page over, for most of you, in chapter 14, what happens? John the Baptist is murdered. It's about to get hard for them. Life is actually getting ready to become difficult. We're not actually that far out uh, from Jesus beginning to explain his death most clearly because he's going to go and be murdered himself. He's training them to think in terms of uh, God's kingdom being a fixed entity so that when life gets hard, we don't have to panic. So that when we don't get what we want, we don't have to panic. So that when we get things that we don't think are fair, that makes us unhappy or uncomfortable, we don't have to panic. The Lord knows what He's doing. It gives us a sense of hope. Two, it should give us a sense of peace. To know that the reason why God is taking His time is because he's patient, not lazy. That's one of my favorite parts to realize you think about the wheat and the tares. The Lord allows our difficulty to continue for a season because he's patient. It's not because he's lazy. It's not because he's absent. It's not because he's like me and goes, I, just, I don't know what to do. I don't know how to fix that. How many times do we find ourselves in that situation where I'd fix it if I knew how? I don't know what I'm doing. God's never in that situation. Instead, interestingly, he's patient with how he handles his kingdom because he's allowing it to develop along his perfect plan to develop into the, the things that he wants it to be. 
Friends, if you begin to understand this, it will reshape how you deal with difficulty because you will not have to rush through it because your God is being patient with you. And then lastly, this actually should give us a great deal of joy as God's people and it should be part of the fuel really for our evangelism. I mean, you realize everybody has a difficult life in some fashion, and if you don't know Jesus, your life is intensely more difficult. We have explained to us that the kingdom we belong to will win. In a world that's constantly looking around, and 2020 has been great for this, a world that looks like it's imploding in on itself to be able to say, guess what? We win. Would you like to be a part of the winning team? We win not because we're that great, but because Jesus is. It's why it's his kingdom. A king that is going to accomplish this in totality, just a little bit. He's going to go to the cross. He's going to die. He's going to be raised so that he shows he's victorious over death. He's victorious over the devil. He's victorious over sin. He's victorious over all of his enemies. And that victory is already ours, though not yet full. You see, the reality is Christianity is, if we were going to be a little bit kind of, eh, tongue-in-cheek here, it's the greatest mystery because it's not finished yet. The same way that we kind of crave that longing, that resolution, that ending, that's a good thing for us to crave in, in terms of our dealing with difficulties and the hardships of our life and our resistance against sin. But the good news is we know how it ends. We just haven't seen it yet. May it be that we would love our Lord and trust our Savior until the kingdom is brought to its fullness and that victory is ours in totality. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for Jesus. We praise you and thank you for the kingdom. It's in Christ's name, amen.